that change the outside world and so in fact that's what we talk about i've had many many people who have seen interviews uh uh have complained how can you possibly be happy when the children in yemen are starving are they being bombed mm -hmm. or what about world hunger the answer is well the world's going to be hungry whether i'm happy or miserable you know so uh Today, uh, by the way, welcome, James. I'm glad to make your friendship, and I hope that we could become good friends. It's uh, a, a great honor for me, and uh, I'm very, very appreciative of all the uh, good, good teachings that uh, okay. you, you provide. Well, yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's exactly what we're talking about. The myth of all those good teachings. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's the myth. All the myth. those good teachings. In fact, there is only a very small set of teachings that in order to be understood need to be looked at from various angles and various points of view. Mm-hmm. And that we have to take these very, very simple things that we're talking about and apply it to a very complicated human's life. Mm -hmm. The complexity is the fact that uh, the human has gotten themselves into a great deal of diversity. And so when they see Buddhism, they see just more diversity or just one more thing to throw in the bag. Mm -hmm. The, the acquisitional than, mindset of the right, Westerner. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. As opposed to having the mindset of this is, in fact, directions on how to put a hole in the bottom of your bag. Right. These directions don't need to be thrown into the bag the way you throw everything else in. This direction says, hey, take a, this and that and you put a hole in the bottom of the bag so the stuff begins to leak out. Right, yeah. The, and the, that's the, the whole teaching of the Buddha that makes it different. And the, the scholars have known about this, but the practitioners don't. What I mm -hmm. mean by the scholars is, is that they know and they talk about that Buddhism is a negative or via negata or a subtraction process. Right, taking away. But taking away. Yeah. And that's all there is to it, is to change that process from adding to into the mindset of taking away. Mm -hmm. All right, and so the first things that we start taking away is all the troubles, all the problems, and everything like that, and get the mind into a really, really good state. Yeah, gladdening the mind. Gladdening the mind, precisely, which the Buddha would also refer to as uh, taking the right effort to remove unwholesome thoughts, also called hindrances, and place into the mind only wholesome thoughts, one after another after another. Right, now, it's almost, base. almost like a, when you let go of the uh, dukkha, it, it pulls you... Or, or almost slings you into an exuberant state because you have freedom. <laughs> wow, what a relief it is to not have to go to work today in my own mind. Yeah. 
It's to be able to take the day off, literally, or right. at least the hour, or maybe the moment, but at least take a moment off. Mm -hmm. You don't have any jobs to do, no worries to make, no uh, thoughts to do, no enlightenment to gain, no mm -hmm. past life experiences to strive for, nothing. Everything's right. okay. Just let it go and relax. That's the basic teaching of the Buddha from that to stages of more relaxation to stages of even more relaxation. <laughs> To the point that we get down to the point that we're not even processing the data that's coming in through our senses. We're just sitting there in sensory awareness in a state of awe and wonder because we're not trying to make sense out of anything. Yeah. We're in this great sense of well being because we have dropped away all of the hindrances, all of the thoughts, all of the uh, bad feelings, and are just. <sighs> Relax. Yeah, a sense of appreciation and, and gratitude. Appreciation and gratitude and wonder, awe, uh, a, a feeling of being in the presence of something magnificent is happening in a really magnificent way ongoing. So that's the kind of, yes, appreciation, real appreciation for the value of being alive and being able to note the reality of this present instant, this present moment. Yeah, Co cosmic awe. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's it. We don't have good language for it, but we're pointing in the direction of how nice one can allow oneself to feel and that, in fact, we can talk ourselves into it. And yeah. yet most people spend their whole lives seeking that kind of stuff in outside ways, like at football games or pool tables or brothels or all kinds of things. We're looking for the exhilaration of the winning, and we often have to deal with the agony of defeat. Right. The Buddhist well, method is let's get rid of and start dealing with these things one at a time, and the first one to go is the agony of defeat. So that right. we actually do feel the thrill of the win, and after we get that, then we can set that aside too. Yeah, it's as if the Western society has gamified our uh, in, in, innate desire, but it's a desire to come back to the self or to come back to the all cosmic awe. And they put uh, a bunch they of... think that they're uh, far away from it or that they have many spiritual practices to do or they make, need to make a whole lot of merit or something right. or another is preventing it from happening right now, and it has to be done way off into the future. Right. They create a disassociative state and then try to sell you a cure to get back that innate sense of awe and appreciation. Well, now you're talking about the, fu the function of the charlatan. Yeah. The yeah. priest, the magician. The sleight of hand magicians, the snake handlers. Well, even the, the bread and circuses that that are there to to be a substitute for what you have internally. If, oh, you mean like social workers doing the same kind of thing? Anyone trying to sell you something that you think will make you happy. Mm-hmm. Oh, 
Well, in that case, then we can bring in the whole show, and that whole show I call the GREB, G-R-E-B, which means government, religion, right. education, <laughs> and business. There you go, GREB. GREB. That's the big dudes that are trying to make a profit off of your misery. Mm -hmm. So that if they have enough profit, then they have can able then to deal with their own misery. Right. If they well, would the, go off and deal with their own misery directly, then other people would not be ripped off as well as being miserable. Right. Well, the more miserable the more people are, the higher the demand are the uh, cures for the misery that they mm -hmm. present in terms of material things mostly or right. drugs. Yeah. And so the entire professional system then has to do with acknowledging that there's a problem that needs to be fixed. Yeah. All right, the Buddha has a different philosophy about that. There's no problem. Uh -huh. Or that you're creating the problem with your unwholesome negative thoughts. Right, the disassociative state, your, the divide between yourself and your happiness. Right, so look at what you're doing. Look at the fact that we make ourselves unhappy because we give ourselves work to do. But you see, there is a delusion or a fallacy built in there, and that fallacy we can put in the language of several different perspectives, and one of the perspectives is, is delayed gratification. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, delayed gratification has been around for a long time, and in fact, you could basically say that this is the old Hindu and now more modern Christian version of, of God in the sense of the um, the comma machine, the mm -hmm. delayed gratification. You do good and you will get good results. If you do bad, you will get bad results eventually, so mm -hmm. they say, or the other way of saying it is no matter what. Right, and heaven and hell are, are the furthest. Are, are the exact, uh, uh, right, exactly the extremes of this whole do good and get good results. But there's a few kickers in there like forgiveness and mercy and, and grace and those kind of things. But basically the old point is, is that you need mercy and grace because of your bad behavior and you're trying to get a, a way out of it. So now getting the grace is now a good action that mollifies or destroys the bad results that you were going to have coming to you. Right, so they implant that disassociative wedge very early on in their theology. Not only is it that way, but we do that with our kids. Yeah. We teach them delayed gratification. Learn your ABCs, know, know your numbers, know your one, two, threes. Why? Well, if you do that, you can get into the second grade. You can get a, a graduation, then into second grade. Well, why do I have to learn words? Yeah. So you could graduate and get into the third grade. And along the way, many of the kids, but a lot of them don't ever figure out that, hey, wait a minute, this gratification that I had thought was coming is short lived and inadequate. Right. And it gets you on the, the, the treadmill of more and more and more and more. So I got the third grade. Where's the 33rd grade? <laughs> and they don't know when to get off the train. Exactly. 
And so that's what happens when the guy gets about 40 years old and winds up in the Harley Davidson dealership. He's still looking for the gratification that he didn't quite get in the first grade. Yeah, they promised me gratification, but <laughs> I never got it. And so I've been not only that, but all the gratification that I have been looking for has not been exactly that gratifying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not enough. That hardly isn't enough for 20 years in the factory, in other words. Mm -hmm. Exactly so. And so we feel ripped off or we have the opinion from childhood of being a victim. Right. Of victim. being ripped off. Yeah. Of needing help, needing mercy, needing forgiveness, needing uh, grace or needing a mommy somehow or another to come back and start taking care of me like she did when I was a baby in diapers. She would say goo 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 gaga. But by the time I'm six years old, she says, pick up your toys and clean your room and do your ABCs and put down that cell phone and do your homework. And that's yeah. what life becomes for the human being. And deep inside, we long for that original state of nurturing and well-being and everything was taken care of. And isn't that a nice fat tit right in front of us with such delicious milk and everything is okay. Right. Or the, the flip side, the anger at being ripped off to want to redress that uh, disassociative well, that's state. Prefer, right. But, the, but those feelings, especially that one, is going to prevent us from ever being able to get into that state again. Right. Yeah. It is because we're pissed off because we're the victim that's been ripped off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. This is a self-perpetuating thing that happens in childhood and it perpetuates right into adulthood. And the Buddha is making a statement here. Wake up and look at what you're doing, that you're in fact creating your own misery with your own unwholesome thoughts. And that's yeah. basically the entire teaching of the Buddha, but we put it in reference to the Four Noble Truths. Mm -hmm. But most of the teachers who teach the Four Noble Truths don't really understand the point mm -hmm. because they never get around to it. And all of the lessons and all that I've ever heard from all of the different teachers around the Four Noble Truths, they tend to neglect the Third Noble Truth, almost as if in passing, almost as if, well, we don't cover that now because that's so far into the future for you anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, all of it is very, very insightful, very uh, profound. And that's where getting back to the poly, uh, if you have a suggestion, at least for the fundamental texts that, that uh, let's say, an intermediate student should start with, uh, for example, now, I don't want to get off on the comparative religion angle, but if perhaps something has been mistranslated because of the theologians that were doing the original English translations. I've run into a lot of bad English translations. Well, you're really, really putting them high up on I wouldn't call them theologians. I would call them scholars. Riles Davies and I.B. Honer, and there are several Ooh, of them. Scholars. I'm theologians, so sure. With the way that they did their translations, we need to put that as a big stamp on them. <laughs> it's a personal pet peeve of mine. I'm going to have to, to work on it for the rest of my life, but I, I, I don't like bad do translations. So and then it's not work. And then it's there just it is. an issue. 
for there, me it's, it's just there it is it's it's found treasure then by by you it's like taking a golden object out of the ground and um polishing it off so for me personally i i, I would uh, very much look forward to to seeing well first learning what are the foundational texts in your opinion and then maybe looking at for example, a German translation of that text and then comparing it to the English translation to see if. Okay, this is what I would recommend in that regard. And that is, is that without going too much into detail, we could understand that uh, an understanding of the Dhamma mm -hmm. is what we're really looking for anyway. Yeah. And that we may, in fact, be having to find the Dhamma in a whole lot of weeds if we go directly to the suttas. Yeah. yeah. In fact, we may need to learn how to read the suttas so that we know where to, where to go find those Easter eggs, what kind of bushes they hide under, and that kind of thing. Yeah. For this reason, I would recommend students you get familiar with the works of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Okay. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa uh, is there to teach the Dhamma uh, to the Thai people, but what he has to say actually is of great value to the Westerner because it's about the human being anyway. Okay. The problem is, is that uh, the stuff that's been translated from the Thai into English in some cases has the same similarity of translation errors that we have with the Pali, only they're not nearly so profound because mm -hmm. the students who are doing the translations of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa are students of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Right. Okay. And so there's very, very small little things. And I'll give you an example of that is one of the books uh, that was, I think it was published in 1988. And the name of the book is Anapanasati, uh, Mindfulness uh, for the serious beginner okay yeah and i would change that word serious out of it because of the kind of connotations that it have and put the word enthusiastic in there instead but those are the kind of little translation errors yeah. that sometimes make a big difference in our understanding right the serious buddhist is not what yeah. you want <laughs> exactly Right. Serious Buddhas we don't need. <laughs> but what Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was talking about, Santikaro understood, but he chose the wrong word. But Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's English wasn't sophisticated enough to know that kind of distinction. Right, right. No, it's an ongoing thing, and it's so beneficial that he's a living um, teacher. Uh, or it was a living teacher to at, during your time. What is he still alive? He died in 1993, but first um, uh, line students of his okay. are both in the East and the West. Christopher Titmus and Santa Caro and Robert Bucknell are some of the Westerners who teach uh, uh, with the knowledge of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Yeah, see, teachers really never die in that sense, but mm -hmm. it's, the closer people were to their living memory, the better for understanding. 
Well, one of the things that's very curious and interesting and actually quite humorous, and I, I found this out in 2002 when I had gone back to watch Suan Mokas and Mok to visit with uh, Achan Po. And Achan Po literally stopped whatever he was not doing and took me on a whirlwind journey all over South Thailand, all the way up to Renong, to Chumpon, uh, to several places I don't know the name of, all the way down to uh, Nakorn Sri Tamarat, and all the way over to Phuket. And on all cases, especially in Renong, was uh, a monk's conference there, but he was going back to reintroduce me to some of the monks that were there at Wat and Mok when I was there as a monk. It was kind of like an old home meeting, and he took that as an opportunity. We went to Surat Thani and saw the Upajaya and other things like this. But here's the point that I want to make. He didn't take me to some back alley monk in some borough city. He always took me to the chief head abbot of the biggest Wat in the city. The top. Yeah, the, the top dudes are, uh, so Bhikkhu Buddha Das's students mm -hmm. are in top demand as the, uh, of the, uh, the higher ranks in all of Thailand, especially in South Thailand. That's yeah. quite amazing. Yeah. Is that he had that, that kind of, uh, um, status. Yeah, it's 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 uh, really amazing how the cosmic order can send these uh, souls to us and uh, enlighten us all. No, don't think of it that way. There was no cosmic doing this, that, and the other thing. That it's in fact that he began to look and he began to see. He began to wake up. He went through the same process the Buddha did, except that he had a whole lot of starting power to go for. Here's a little story that might help you to understand. Mm -hmm. In the early 1930s, he was giving talks because he was actually a student of Pali because in Thailand, they have actually nine levels of Pali examinations. They're really into the language. There's guys who in Thailand not only speak the language, but one of the monks that I knew quite personally and was very fond of, his teacher knew the entire Tripitaka by heart and demonstrated so in the 1950s at the, uh, the Sixth World Buddhist Conference, where Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, by the way, was the, the keynote speaker. Okay, yeah. And so this is the level of monks that I've been kind of associated with. Just, I mean, really fortunate in that way. But the point is, is that, yes, there is that level of poly that's in part of the Thai culture and their translations of the Pali uh, have been modified and Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa actually prompted some of the changes. And here's how that happened, that when he was a Pali student in Bangkok, he was invited to give talks. And in the audience, some of the people did not like what he had to say. Mm -hmm. And so they got really angry and started a fuss and uh, the word is Sangha de Sessa. And what a Sangha de Sessa is means a breaking deceased. You hear the Sangha de Cease, okay, mm -hmm. to kill it, to break it. Yes, Sanskrit so, word or uh, Indo Germanic, it's pretty close exactly. to vitality. Exactly. 
Right, you can just hear that word, and you know what it means. It's you not good. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so they brought him up on charges of saying a decessa because of what he was teaching, and because it was in Bangkok, and because of all the well-known monks, they actually held a saying a decessa of some of the top brass, if you can think of them that way, in Bangkok. Mm-hmm. And a saying a decessa always requires 20 monks. There, there, if there's a magical number in, in Buddhism, it's 20. 20, okay. You have to be 20 years a monk to become a theory. You have to be 20 years old to become a monk. You have to have 20 monks to ordain a temple. It takes 20 monks to ordain a new monk. It takes 20 of this, that, and the other thing. And the Sangha de Sesta is another place where it takes 20 monks. To, to, uh, to be, that, that's the monk's court. A monk's wow. court, a sangha de sessa, is 20 monks to come together. And that in that, you found of uh, that group division. Right. Now, was Bhikkhu okay. Buddhadasa a monk at this time or just a student oh, of language? Oh, 10 years a monk. He was an Anchan. 10 years. Okay. So... He was 10 years a monk, an Anchan, and out teaching and going through the fall, uh, some of the higher level Pali studies. So he was ordained already by 20 monks. So long time ago. Long time. Right. Yeah. Oh, this is now yeah, he was ordained. Let's see. He was born in 1906, so he would have been ordained in 1926. This so this is around 1935-36. Okay, so this is the time frame that we're talking about. He was a monk of 10 years at that time. Mm-hmm. So uh and he and, revisited the the Pali text with, let's say, a a new. He presented that in court. In court, as fresh as as he could. And that then what happened with that was is that that required a literature search that put hundreds of monks to work. Uh huh. Looking at the text together. Yeah, is he lying about this? Is this yes, really exactly. true? What is this? Uh-huh. All right. So this is what the outcome was. There was two outcomes to this trial. Mm-hmm. One is is that the judgment was is that he was teaching the right Dhamma to the wrong people. That mm-hmm. was the sentence. Yeah. But because of nothing happened to it, he contended that for the rest of his life in the sense of now that the cat is out of the bag, let's leave it out. And he became publicly known for actually publicly teaching the noble Dhamma. But he had backup. Let's go back to that panel because one of the members on that panel happened to have been the Samdet Sangharaj of Thailand, the number one top monk. Yeah. Who had been appointed by the previous top monk who uh, with they've got cardinals. They've got a group called uh, Chow Kun. There's between three and five hundred. of They're very much like the cardinals. Mm-hmm. OK, so there's a lot of um, uh, acceptance of who's going to be the uh, uh, the Samdet Sangharaj. And in fact, there's actually six of them in Thailand. But the one in Bangkok is the heavy duty dude. Right. Mm-hmm. This monk actually became Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's personal teacher. This is interesting. Now we're talking about that not only did uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa get off scot free from this trial, but that he had agreement with some really heavy duty top monks in Thailand. What this indicates is, is that the Sangha had been alive and well 
for all along and Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa just happened to stumble into it just like others do. He just stumbled right. into it in a very public way. Right, and he attracted through the controversy people to, and challenged them to show where he was wrong. Precisely so, which began to convince a lot of people. That's why he is so big time in Thailand. Mm -hmm. He is really, really big in, in Thailand. Here's some names of some of his students. This, will, this is jaw-dropping. Okay, uh, number one would be Achan Panyananda, who was the, um, uh, the head of the largest temple in Thailand, mm -hmm. Wat Chulapatan in Nornterbury. That's in fact, uh, he was very close to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, and that's the, the monastery where uh, uh, Santikaro went to ordain, and um, uh, Achan Panyananda was his Upajaya. So this is close-knit stuff. Here's the one that'll blow you away. Achan Cha was a student of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. The first time and the only time that I've ever spent much time with Achan Cha was at Watsu and Mok. Of all things, yeah. Of all places. And not only that, but I also met uh, Achan Samedo at that time because Achan Cha brought Achan Samedo to see Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. There's actually at least one YouTube video of all of the students who are there are all Western monks under the Achan Tra tradition being taught in broken Thai English, they call it Thailish, by Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. And there's videos of that where Achan Cha is standing over to the side someplace. So this is the kind of connection and so, yeah, uh, um, Achan Samedo, Achan Amaro, Achan Pasano, that whole crowd are very close to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and understand his teachings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it sounds like uh, that's, that's the where to start with. This is, this is the place to start, is with the noble Dhamma mm -hmm. of this whole point about we have to clean the mind out, gladden the mind, practicing anapanasati so that we can get the mind really fit for work. So that then we can note the passing, arising and passing away, but in doing so, we're only noting the wholesome, valuable, true things. Right. But right. if you're then, noting before the hindrances are gone, then all you're going to note is the rising and falling away of hindrances and garbage and wind up in some dark night of the soul or, you know, the whole story with that. That's just, how Western psychology works. It's just rehashing all of the bad things that, that are in your mind instead of just recognizing and uh, getting rid of them and then focusing on the good. Mm -hmm. and and just calming the mind. And so um, in Anapanasati, you can see one of the ways of looking at it is, is that the first, second, and third triad, the body, the feelings, and the mind, are the skills to be developed so that we could get the mind really fit for work, so that then we could go for the fourth tetrad, which is where... Um, the Satipatthana Sutta and the one by one as they occur and many other places where they're talking about what to do while you're in jhana. That in fact, that would be the 
one of the ways of saying the entire teachings of the Buddha in one sentence would be that you have to get your mind in a really pleasant state so that you can see really what's going on. Mm-hmm. Now, we can say that phrase in other more technical ways, and that is, is that you have to get into the first jhana so that you can see what's going on. Mm-hmm. You can dispense with the bad and focus on the good. Mm-hmm. Now, what's really going on is, is that in the time of the Buddha, uh, jhana practice was widespread. Mm-hmm. The problem with the jhanas is, is that people even nowadays think that the jhanas are the are the ends unto themselves, mm-hmm. rather than getting the mind fit for work. Right to process what's going on at, in in a circular fashion and constantly making the right decision based on dharma. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so this is where we then get back to the Four Noble Truths and especially the Eightfold Noble Path about sati, to remember to wake up and take a look. Right, and, and to gladden the mind that you well, made the it. Congratulations. Right yeah. That's the right effort. You yeah. have to take the effort to gladden the mind because most meditators, they don't do that. They're not taking the right effort that it takes. They call it choiceless awareness or noting. Yeah, terrible use of language there. Yeah, terrible use of language. They're just so so uh, deceptive and, and just empty in a lot of ways. But yeah, congratulating yourself to get to the point of being able to decide what am I thinking about right now and how to classify it and immediately get rid of the mm-hmm. bad ideas, bad thoughts. Yes. Now, that thought that you have right there is another way of stating the entire teachings of the Buddha. And in fact, it is stated in many, many ways like that in the suttas. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so one of the things that I would recommend that you read would be Void Mind by Bhikkhu Buddhadasa. It's available. You can probably just do Void Mind and bring it up on Google immediately, the PFD for it. All right. To where the Void Mind, the Westerner will automatically think that means void means completely empty. You got nothing. To where the Void Mind in, in this regard is actually talking about, no, we have to have wholesome thoughts in the mind yeah there could be a few of them but find them and focus on them and space Mm -hmm. them out you don't have to have a gluttonous amount of good thoughts one is enough right one at a time exactly that's exactly right so this is the way that we would practice and you can see from this this is only a very small tinker That whole tinker point is that we have to remove the unwholesome. It's almost like saying that the only thing that the clock needed was cleaning. If we just clean the clock, then it would work right. Right, the maintenance manual, the the second line or third line is uh, (laughs) (laughs) make sure you you remove the dust from the working gears. Mm -hmm. Otherwise... that's exactly what we need to do. And so the dust would be dust from the past. 
So having thoughts about the past, thoughts about the future, thoughts about someplace else yeah. is dust in the clock of the ticking of right now. Yeah, you're manifesting something in the present, which is a tumorous or poisonous type of okay. reality. Precisely. Okay, so let's talk about then the correct function of the clock is very much like the atana, mm -hmm. which means the sensory world. In the sensory world, there's five, the touch, the taste, the smell, the sight, and the sound. Okay. However, in Buddhism, we talk about sixth sense, which is the mind. Mm -hmm. Now, the five senses work on the outside world, but they, in the sense of reality, to where the mind is working on old dialogue, running old tapes, not right. in the present moment. So the thoughts that we have uh, are often thoughts of the past. And when we're doing that, we're not in the present moment. So in being in the present moment is going to be very much like being in the sensory awareness. Yeah, thoughts of the past, thoughts of the future, fears, but also instinctive um, things that come up. For example, the survival instinct, uh, fear, is being then triggered for some reason it, when there's no alligators well, in the room. Yeah, right, you say not talk or two. <laughs> All right. So, yes, that's exactly correct. We trigger these feelings of fear. And we probably do it with thoughts that may have only been one thought moment or two, just just an image. Yeah, like, a split second. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be the thought of someone's name that you need to send an email to or something like that. And that can bring up fear in just one thought moment. Mm -hmm. But the good point is, is that we don't have to continue with those thought moments. We can change them. And we can have thought moments of when we recognize the fear there, we can tell ourselves, really, there's nothing to be afraid of right now. Everything's and, okay right now. And that's the sati that recognizes it for the dukkha that it is. And, mm -hmm. and then so it, it cuts off the bad thought and then all of a sudden, gladdening the mind, it brings in the good. And precisely. So now we can go to the point of the back to the four noble truths and say, really, this is all about the third noble truth. Mm -hmm. The whole story of the four noble truths is to get ourselves into that state of the third noble truth. It's not way off out of the future. It's right now. Right here, right now. Right now. The Duke, the Duca Duca Naroda is Western mentality is delayed gratification, Duca, we got to uh, do some um, investigation, we got to do some noting, Duca, Duca, more Duca, I have insight into Duca, I can really see that Duca now. All Duca, all the time. All the time, right. And someday, someday, <laughs> my prince will come, and he's going to bring a no Duca machine with him, okay? And so this is the way that we recognize then that this is the problem of humanity in the time of the Buddha, before the time of the Buddha, everybody was practicing any and all kinds of meditation practices, hoping to get something out of it. Mm -hmm. And the whole point that the Buddha then discovered was, hey, we don't have to get anything out of it. We're already okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, you're in the gold mine. You don't have to carry it to a bank right. and spend right. it. Yeah. Uh huh. Right. Exactly. So that becomes the attitude. The ad. The third noble truth is the attitude of well-being. Mm-hmm. The attitude of wholeness. The attitude of got this. Yeah, residing in the palace of the spirit. Mm-hmm. Precisely. And that uh, you can see that throughout all of history and throughout all of humanity, people have been lusting and thirsting and doing all kinds of things to get these kind of feelings. Outside, exterior. Outside, exterior. They go to football games so that when the touchdown is made, they can feel like a champion because they identify with that football. Or they go to a... um, um, Oh, gosh, uh, a pen and teller or someone uh, so that they can get wowed. People like to have uh, magic shows so that they can be uh, wowed and surprised and and all of this kind of stuff. This is actually what horror movies are all about. Right. To feel something. To feel something, precisely. And um, the whole part of the society then, gone, going back to the grab, is is that the grab owns your feelings yeah yeah they're on tv and and you have an external uh orientation right and so the government makes you feel bad and wants you to vote for the other team yeah or wants you to change what's on tv to change the external world to change the internal state but it's uh (laughs) a disassociative Method. Can't change the outside world. And so, in fact, that's what we talk about. I've had many, many people who have seen interviews uh, uh, have complained. How can you possibly happen when the children in Yemen are starving or they're being bombed? Mm-hmm. Or what about world hunger? The answer is, well, the world's going to be hungry whether I'm happy or miserable, you know. Yeah, yeah. You're just fixating on something you can't change necessarily. Okay. And misery, the misery of the world, how can you change it? You can't. So if you want to feel helpless, hopeless, and depressed, please just stick on that. Instead of talk about in the sense of wanting, because they're not even awake enough to to make that kind of choice. Mm -hmm. Rather, it's that they're so habit-driven, so habit-bound already in making that kind of choice that they don't even wake up to the point that they know that they have a choice. Yeah, they're just looking for more misery because they've been given misery and they think that's the only path there is. Uh-huh. Right. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is really big on, on that. He talks about it almost in the sense of you have your comma, which mm-hmm. is what he's talking about in more of the, in the Thai sense is uh, your past or you have uh, the comma and the comma vipaka or you have the results of your past actions and that's what is taught in church that's what's taught in sunday school that's what's taught in uh hindu and that's what's taught to the children in thailand more or less Uh, also like the untouchables in india Mm -hmm. that they're born in the misery and there's just no chance of getting out period exactly but the brahmins are also born into the brahmin misery Uh uh-huh 
Yeah, that that would be a fascinating topic. What type of misery have the Brahmins? The expectations. The expectation, yeah. Yeah, the expectations of being a priest when he wants to be a mechanic. You can't be a mechanic, you're a Brahmin. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, the, the, the uh, torture of high expectations. Mm-hmm. Yes, so there's a lot of camp family conflicts when you're expected to do because you were born in this. So it creates misery. It has its own values. It has its own uh, misery. System. So the, the misery of karma, you could say. And we can also say that that would be one's destiny. That we live out our destiny. He right. who lives by the sword dies by the sword. That we get into a frame of reference and what comes around goes around and we keep dealing with it in that same cycle. Another external factor that we have no control over. Exactly. That's the attitude. Mm -hmm. Until we wake up and recognize, yes, we do have control over this. Yeah. But we're not caught in it. And so this is the point of making the change. This is why we could go so far as to say within the teachings of the Buddha that uh, in, you see in, in Western thought and in philosophies and other places, they have the distinctions between destiny and free will. Mm -hmm. Buddhism is in the, in the middle. And the way that you can easily express it is, is that, well, yes, but it's expensive. You got to put in the right effort. Yeah, you have to have the right attitude. Right, you got to you got to latch hold of that right attitude and right effort and right uh, sati to remember to do this and take the right view. And when you actually put in the right effort uh, of having a wholesome thoughts, you're actually changing your destiny right now. Right, personal responsibility. It's it's about you. It's okay. about your thoughts. You can actually uh, dissect that word re respond ability. means mm -hmm. that there's wisdom. I have the wisdom to respond because I can see what's going on. Mm -hmm. As opposed to the word react, which is just action done on, over and over again. There's the habit. And so right. that's the distinction between, I mean, this is built right into our language, the distinction between reaction and respondability. Yeah, and then habit, you're just in a habit, you're in a cycle, but you can break it. One of them is your comma, the react, react. Mm -hmm. That we react, which means we keep doing the same actions over and over and over again. Actions mm -hmm. mentally, actual verbally, actions with the hands, it's always a reaction. And we go around being punched and prodded and poked, and we react to that punching and prodding and poking. Right. And almost uh, we're overstimulated in our modern environments now to the point where it's, it's really um, out of all, control. All poking and prodding all the time. <laughs> and that's the new normal. It's, uh, I'm hearing a ding here, a ding there. Uh, people are distracted. This is why the Buddha recommends to get into seclusion so we can get away from all that poking and prodding from the outside. And now we can begin to see the poking and prodding we're doing on the inside.
Right, right. To to raise the shields to the、mm-hmm. palace that you have inside, and not just let everybody walk right in and do what they、mm-hmm. want. Trash, trash the place. Right. Mental, have have、exactly. a party in your mind, and you're not invited. <laughs> uh huh. Exactly. So all of these analogies are pointing towards something. We're using palaces and and that kind of、uh, stories and realities, but the The point is, is that we have a choice. That's the point. The、yeah. point is the whole point of the Eightfold Noble Path. The whole point of the Four Noble Truths is, is that we've got a choice: dukkha or dukkha naroda. That's your choice. Especially in one's、right、own、now. mind. Yeah, one's、right、own、now. mind, right here, right now. You have the choice. Got the choice. Drop it. Do it the old way, or are you going to do something new? Yeah, and that's the empowering、uh, simplicity of the teaching, because it's, right. it, it's that's how. But now you're beginning to see just how simple it is, as well as how powerful it is. And now you say, "Well, wait a minute. What about this forty-seven suitcases full of Buddhist baggage?" <laughs> Where's my elephant? I, I need to call Ganesh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, well, there's all magical powers and all kinds of things, but when we recognize, oh, wanting things that we don't have is dukkha. Yeah. That instead of wanting things and then getting them, in fact, look at spiritual power. A really easy example is the Catholic Church, with a thousand years of celibate monks praying and doing all kinds of things to get favors from God. How many actual real miracles have they been able to prove? I rest my case. Case rested. No evidence. A very, very large absence of evidence. So that means that any and everybody. And the funny thing it is is that、uh, people are leaving Christianity in droves because it didn't live up to its magical promises. So well, why I... are then、uh, being、uh, drawn and attracted to Buddhism, and then get hooked up into the, all of the magical promises of Buddhism? Right. Right. The the other. Uh, the 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 mistake of thinking that the grass is greener on the other side. Each every religion, every mental concept or construct has its own pitfalls. Right, and yet the Catholic Church has tried really hard for a long time to get some miracles going, and they can't do it. How do your how does your average uh, uh, let us say guy who lives in Nashville, Tennessee, reading books on Dhamma? How is he going to get those magical powers if the whole Catholic Church can't do it two thousand years? Well, what are his odds? But you can see, but he really wants it. Yeah, yeah.、And、well, I don't even understand why. Why would people want those magical powers? I mean, you know, they have a little song or a little poem about. Them in the sense of diving into the dirt, earth, and swimming like it was in water, walking on water, walking through mountains. They've got a little list there. Okay, who would want to take a bath in dirt? You keep coming up dirty. Yeah. Well, I like to think of them as uh, metaphors. Uh, I also am inspired by by、Except、stories. That,、uh, metaphors for what? 
And then we can go after the metaphor and yank the metaphor out and look at what. Right. And then we can replug these metaphors only if they fit back in. But right now, the metaphors of all we've got, what they were originally pointing at, we're not sure anymore. All we've got is magical powers. Well, guess what? A whole lot of people who became interested in the Buddha were already interested in magical powers. But in fact, um, there's stories about it. One of them is uh, um, uh, Gosi Katami or something uh, like that. She Her baby died, and she went to all of the doctors and then all the magicians, and none of them could bring her baby back to life. And so she went to the Buddha wanting him to do magic. And so he says, okay, you go get me 10 anise seed or maybe mustard seed, they're pretty close. Uh, and you have to get one aniseed from each household who has never had any death. And she went all over town and could not find even, even one house that had not known any death. And so finally she did what she needed to do with that uh, corpse. And she came back to the Buddha and she became a bhikkhuni. That was the magic of the buddha right well the practice the practice it, it goes all the way up to death and and beyond so it can handle well i don't know about the beyond and neither do you it's the ones who say and beyond are the ones who i mean bed and bath is okay you can go beyond that but well that you, you get go. beyond the concept of death Oh, you know, there's a lot of metaphors like that, like uh, uh, death, where is your sting? Yes. And victory over death. And a lot of people think that that means immortality rather than, hey, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a lion here and lions die and I can die like a lion. Right. I can right. handle that. Yeah. Bringing I can stand it... right here and get beat without. Right. <laughs> bringing it to the here now. Mm -hmm. And and saying I'm not, I'm still alive, so I'm not going to be thinking about death or life after death because that's future. Well, basically, right here now, do I feel I can handle anything? That's the feeling to cultivate mm -hmm. the feeling that I can handle anything, so that when anything comes by, we have that attitude: I can handle this too. Right, and the method Knowing is there. Old age, sickness, and death are coming. Yeah, and, and, and possibly worse, but there's no point in, in thinking about what could be wrong in the future. It's just... Well, actually, old age, sickness, and death are the best thing that can happen. Right? Think about it. You get old before you get sick, and then when you're sick, then you die. There's it's... other ways to do it. You could die young. Yeah. That's worse. The dying old. Right. Your how body. About, how about just getting sick and staying sick and sick and sick and not die? And then you get old and die. Right. It's a it's a way of, uh, well, just like fruit ripens on the tree and then finally grows thick or heavy enough to fall of its own mm -hmm. accord. OK. Right. So that's we're talking about something that's natural. Mm hmm. 
So when you were saying uh, there's things that are worse than old age, sickness and death, and I would say, yes, there's one thing I know for sure that's worse, that, that's worse than old age, sickness and death, and that is getting sick young and dying. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or being locked in one's own personal hell with Dukkha just coming and not having any, any control. And not have a choice. Any and method. They don't have any choice. That, uh, so that would be then the whole teachings of the Buddha. The whole point about the Four Noble Truths is that we've got a choice. Mm-hmm. And so therefore we should investigate this Third Noble Truth so that we know what it's like to be free from suffering. Right. To know so what I it's like. Say, so what it's like, hey, am I free from suffering right now? Yeah, this is nice. I like this. Mm-hmm. And I can be in and, that state, and I can do this over and over and over and over again. Precisely. Yeah. And that that's the method, that's the dharma, and that's where your personal responsibility is engaged. And you can't say, "Oh, I can't do this." You have to. Well, but we you don't talk have about to. the. Those doubts later that, in fact, I was getting kind of prepared to to work that into it. So let's let that be next time's topic, as well as some pointers on actual practice. Right. Well, I'm very much uh, uh, I'm I'm over the moon that we uh, finally were able to connect. And uh, I'm I'm very, very uh, grateful for for all of your um, teachings. Well. They're not mine. They don't belong to me. Well, I'll be reading The Void Mind from Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. There's and... a lot of others, Handbook to Mankind and other things like that. But this, those kind of books are pretty slow going because they're loaded down with wisdom. They're dripping with it. Right. I, I have a lot of, uh, well, not work to do, but discovery. Yes. Go play. Enjoy. I will. Thank you. Okay, James. Well, we'll see you soon.